From public books and type media, this is Primary Sources, the show where writers and intellectuals talk about some of the greatest influences on their work. I'm Al Press. My guest today is the historian, activist, and essayist, Rebecca Solnit. I've known Rebecca for almost a decade, and each time we see each other, it seems she has another new book out. Since 1990, she's written more than 20, on subjects ranging from natural disaster and wandering to feminism and social change. In 2008, she published Men Explain Things to Me, an essay about the experience virtually every woman has had of being talked over by a clueless, overconfident man. The essay gave rise to the term mansplaining, a term Rebecca herself never used. And along with her other writings on gender and power, it helped turn Rebecca into one of the most influential and admired feminist writers of our time. In the past, Rebecca has singled out female authors, such as Virginia Woolf, as important influences. Today, though, she'll be talking about a more surprising writer to whom she feels she owes a debt, George Orwell. Orwell is best known for essays such as Politics in the English Language and for his chilling portrayal of totalitarianism in novels such as 1984. He's long been revered by male writers such as George Packer and the late Christopher Hitchens. Female writers, including Rebecca, have tended to be more critical, sometimes taking Orwell to task for ignoring the injustices of sexism. And yet Rebecca counts Orwell as a major influence. In fact, she's devoted her latest book to his life and work. It's called Orwell's Roses, and it was inspired by a visit she paid to his rural cottage, where she learned about the gardening he did long ago. Rebecca contends that nature not only mattered greatly to Orwell, but that it's directly related to his anti-fascism. In our conversation, she elaborates on her unconventional view of Orwell. She offers an alternative reading of 1984. She talks about how Orwell was both a socialist and a critic of the left, and why she identifies with this, and argues for the political importance of pleasure and beauty. And she explains why, despite Orwell's troubling silence about the plight of women, she believes we should still read his works. Also, a heads up, this conversation includes multiple brief references to sensitive topics, including sexual violence and gender violence. Rebecca Solnit, welcome to the show. So glad you're here. When did George Orwell begin to matter to you? I almost don't know because I read Animal Farm when I was still so young. I thought it was a book about animals and had strong feelings about Boxer the Horse. I read some of his other novels in my teens, 1984, pretty early. And then I read Homage to Catalonia, which was a big influence on my second book, Savage Dreams, I wrote at the end of my 20s or so. But the real landmark Orwell book for me was a big, ugly kind of omnibus anthology of his essays called The Orwell Reader. I bought at a used bookstore for a couple of bucks 
when I was either the end of my teens or beginning of my 20s. And, you know, I grew up to be an essayist, which is pretty much what I intended. And that book, as much as anything, or maybe more than anything, really modeled for me what essays could do and what an essayist could be. Mm. I'm guessing, though I'm not sure, that one of the essays in that volume is an essay, I I believe it's the first piece of Orwell's writing that you mention in your book, and it's titled A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, published in 1946. Was that in, in that book? It was, actually, and that was part of what was startling about this book is that I had read and loved that essay since my early 20s. I cited it in something I published in my late 20s, so clearly it was already really present. But I always thought it was fascinating as a fugitive trace of Hugh who Orwell might have been had he not lived in an age of so much corruption and conflict and turmoil. It felt to me like the person he couldn't be, the person he didn't have time to be because he was this grim, serious, anti-fascist figure. And really this book is launched from the realization that he did manage to be that person he is in the essay, and a good word for the Vicar of Bray, for those who haven't read it, is this delightfully meandering uh, essay. You feel a lack of pressure both uh, about the writing as well as about the subject matter. It's about various cultural things, and maybe the thread that runs through it is the idea that planting a tree, especially, says, when the long-lived hardwood trees, like a walnut, may outlive any other deed of yours, good or bad. And that the next time you sort of check your your karmic roster, you might slip an acorn or two into the ground. But it, he describes planting fruit trees and roses himself 10 years earlier and having just seen them and seeing how well they're doing, how little effort was involved at the outset and how the fruit trees may be bearing fruit into the 21st century. Even though it feels like a very slight essay, in conventional terms, it's also looking forward to a 21st century from 1946 at the beginning of the atomic age. So it's also not at all pessimistic. It's actually thinking about the future in pretty ecological terms and relatively cheerful ones. And and the Vicar of Bray is this figure who he says will be remembered for a yew tree that has been planted outside of uh, a church. Is that is that right? So yeah, the Vicar of Bray in his essay is a comic figure who during the religious wars in England kept switching sides so that he wouldn't be, you know, killed or exiled or have to go into hiding. And so it's about, you know, a kind of political quizlingism or fickleness. And the other thing he mentions the Vicar of Bray did is plant this magnificent yew tree, which it sounds very much like he's seen, although he doesn't specify. And my friend Sam Green, who had a lot to do with the inception of this book, and I actually went and looked for the yew tree. We met the current Vicar of Bray, who lives in a very conservative district, and said some very Vicar of Bray-ish stuff about handling (laughs) his Tory constituency, or congregation, not constituency, and, um, you know, we found some magnificent yew trees, but nothing that felt like the superlative yew we were looking for. And yet in that essay, you think there's something important, there, it, certainly to you. Is, is it a sensibility? Is, is it just the fact that 
um, he's interested in nature and, and that in and of itself deserves more attention? It's not only that he's interested in nature with all this talk about gardening and planting trees, but it's also a really cheerful, pleasurable essay. You can tell he's enjoying himself thinking about this song and this poem, thinking about trees and gardens and things like that. And I had always thought of it as like the person Orwell might have been had he not been in this turbulent time. But the interesting thing is... um, And of course, the beginning of the book is Sam Green may someday do a film about trees. We were talking about trees. We had been exchanging emails and clips and nuggets of fact about trees. We were hanging out in the summer of 2017. He was talking about trees planted by notable people. And I said, because of the essay, oh, you know, Orwell planted fruit trees. And then we jumped on my computer to see if they were still there. He wrote a letter to the address Orwell lived at at Wallington in Hertfordshire. Um, You know, and we hadn't received a response when I was on book tour later that year, decided to take a cab to the cottage met the lovely couple who invited me in, much to my surprise, showed me around, told me the fruit trees had been cut down, introduced me to Nigel next door who remembered the fruit trees, so at least they had a witness, and then very casually said, oh, but the roses he planted are still here. Would you like to see them? And of course, I I was so exhilarated, but I left with this sense... I had never really thought hard enough about what it meant that our great anti-fascist, our great prophet of totalitarianism, the author of 1984, Politics in the English Language, and a lot of other very heavy-duty anti-fascist, anti-totalitarian, anti-propaganda pieces of writing had planted roses. And meeting what they then thought were his roses, they're now a little more dubious about that, as I found out as we were going to press, but they may or may not be, you know, but it made me think, what does it mean that this man of all people planted roses? Because we often think of Orwell as the most austere, the most dedicated, the most grim, you know, the man who, as he says himself, was, you know, made his job facing unpleasant facts. The fact that he was also facing flowers, planting flowers, cultivating flowers, loving flowers in his vegetable garden, his goats and chickens, the natural world, birds, watching the weather, allowed me to pursue a bunch of questions I've long had about pleasure and beauty and politics and the left and the relationships between aesthetics and ethics and many other things. And so a book was born in that garden in 2017. Rebecca, you mentioned 1984, and you use the word grim. And I think that um, most people who, who hear that title and who have read the book and recall reading it, maybe in high school or years ago, or maybe during the Trump era, think about the grim portrait of the world, of this dystopian future that it paints. But you say in the book, you, you, you write quite a bit about 1984, and you tell us about a different 1984 that you discovered upon rereading it. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, one of the great pleasures of having been around for a number of decades now is encountering the same work of art over and over and being a different person at different times. I had read 1984 many times, starting with well before the actual year 1984, when I was very young. 
And of course, what's startling and original and new to readers, particularly when it came out, is its dystopian portrait of a totalitarian state that penetrates into people's homes, attempts to control their thoughts and emotions, and you know has the thought police and almost total control over people's lives. Of course, that's most what we remember because that's most startling and significant about it in some ways. But Winston Smith, the scrawny, not always courageous protagonist of it, rebels against Big Brother. And how does he do this? He does eventually take real interest in overthrowing the regime. But he also just pursues introspection, personal life, a love affair. The very opening of the book, 1984, begins with Winston Smith opening a book that he's bought in a junk shop in the proletarian district that will become very important. It's beautiful, creamy paper he's writing on with a inkwell and old-fashioned pen. And the sheer sensual pleasure of writing, as well as having your private thoughts and a way of expressing them, is really the beginning of the book. He's staking out this space to be what he's not supposed to be, which is partly somebody having sense, like meaningful sensory experience, independent thought. But then, you know, he has these dreams of the golden country, which is just a very quotidian British countryside place with molehills and pastures and trees and things. And when he falls in love with this young woman, she takes him off to consummate the relationship in what turns out to be an exact duplicate almost of the golden country he's dreamed of. And it's part of what's startling about the book when I read it this time. It's much less a realist objective style novel in that there's so many echoes between his dreams and actualities. And there's a lot of eeriness in the book, but there's also a lot of beauty. There's bird song, there's the golden country, there's little things, a glass paperweight with a bit of red coral in it becomes a really significant object that represents this little world of his love affair, this link to earlier times. The sheer beauty of the object feels like resistance because beauty itself is subversive. And then finally, there's the woman singing outside the window of that room above the junk shop where the beautiful notebook and the paperweight came from. And she, for me, is the real hero and center of the book. And the metaphor Orwell uses to describe her is roses and rose hips. And that was startling to me. And it's very easy and often done by the left and the rest of the world to treat sensory experience, these direct encounters, as somehow trivial, irrelevant, beside the point. But one of the points the book makes is that the regime wants, you know, the last and final command of the regime was to not trust the evidence of your eyes and ears. So to trust the evidence of your eyes and ears by paying close attention, finding things that stimulate that attention, is a kind of subversion. It doesn't topple regimes, but it does cultivate trusting your senses, independence of thought, pursuing empirical evidence, and uh, believing yourself rather than what the regime tells you. So so to you, this surprising color and beauty even um, in 1984 is 
pretty central to the novel. I mean, you see it yeah. as, as a counterpoint and as an integral piece of the message of the book, if, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, I think we've all spent all our time looking at Orwell as a writer who wrote about what he was against. And he was very good at being against things, was passionately against authoritarianism, against propaganda and lies, the sloppiness of language that excuses human rights abuses. He was also very critical of industrialism and urbanism. He was a great lover of the countryside, etc. So not only does he actually write a lot about what he's for, including privacy, the privacy that, as Edward Snowden reminded us, is a necessary part of liberty and independence of thought and free association. But, you know, he's for a kind of freedom to do what you want, and his own freedom to do what he wanted turned out he wanted to garden, to be in the natural world, to milk his goats and collect his eggs from his chickens, to ramble about in the countryside, to watch the weather, to go fishing. Those were his great pleasures. He died with a fishing pole in his hospital room, hoping to be flown to a sanatorium in Switzerland and get some fishing in. He began writing the novel 1984 by moving to the Isle of Jura in the Scottish Hebrides, a long-held dream of his, and spent that summer barely writing and mostly starting up a garden that would come to be this on the scale of a farm. Ultimately, it would include a horse, two cows, a pig, geese as well as chickens, um, ornamental and uh, plantings, and a bunch of vegetables. And he also had a fishing boat and they were and lobster traps and was uh, eating a lot of seafood as well, which in that era of British rationing was also a very sane and healthy way to live. I'm sensing you delight in that, this sort of counterportrait of, of Orwell as, as not the ascetic man at the typewriter, but rather the gardener. It was really fun to find out that there was this other Orwell. And I think it's not so much just about who Orwell is, but that so many people on the left in particular, in our, and I think in our society in general, think if you're serious, if you're committed, you have to have this austere, joyless life. Something I often find on the part of the left, and this around climate as well, is the idea that a kind of puritanical self-denial is your noble contribution. And one thing I constantly insist upon is that people who are being hideously oppressed in other parts of the world are not sitting around saying, well, at least those middle-class people in England or the U.S. are not having nice desserts or flowers. You know, nobody nobody in a death camp or in, a, in the midst of genocide is like, well, I'm glad they're not wearing pretty clothes in America. You know, that is not our valuable contribution. Our valuable contribution is to actually do shit for them. And that is entirely compatible with tending your garden, you know, listening to beautiful music, etc. One thing that became very resonant for me in the book was the phrase bread and roses, which was coined by a woman suffrage organizer in 1910, Helen Todd, when she said, if women get the vote, and of course this turned out to not exactly be the case, but when women get the vote, we will have bread for all and roses too. And bread meant the necessity, the bare necessities of life, which is often all the left really campaigns for, you know, and those are good things. We need food, clothing, shelter, health care. But 
the roses meant that we all need and deserve something more. We deserve that unquantifiable experiential thing that is education, culture, leisure, beauty, nature, etc. And I love that phrase when I came to look at it deeply, because from its very origins, it meant we need more than the quantifiable. Human beings are not so contained and controllable. Um, You have to leave some leeway for the fact that you may want to listen to cello concertos and I may want to listen to punk rock. You may want to go to all night raves and I may want to plant a vegetable garden. That our pleasures and joys are actually very subjective and individual and so we can't control human life enough to decide exactly what those are going to be. Another piece of it that felt really important about Orwell is that he... He said in a questionnaire, one of those author questionnaires in 1940, after writing, the thing I am most passionate about is gardening, particularly vegetable gardening. It raised also a question for me, what are those things we need to do in our lives that may be regarded by others or even ourselves as trivial, irrelevant, indulgent, trite, that in fact are what we actually need to do in order to be able to do the real work we're here to do. I noticed there's one passage you quote twice in the book, um, and it relates very much to what you're talking about. It connects this sort of pleasure and this individual pursuit to the act of writing itself. Orwell says, I could not do the work of writing a book or even a long magazine article if it were not also an aesthetic experience. Um, You quote that twice, and I wonder what it means to you and, and whether it is, in fact true for your own work. It is absolutely true. Everything I write um, beyond text messages has some aesthetic dimensions. And there is a sense, I think, with all my work of coherence is a kind of beauty, integrity of meaning is a kind of beauty. So there's another thing that's really important in the book. We often treat beauty as an optional luxury, a kind of add-on and a side dish. But, and I was very interested in, well, what is beauty to Orwell? And obviously he loves roses in particular and flowers in general. There are a lot of them in his books, a lot of them in his life. He plants and cultivates them. It's a beautiful description when he's in London during the war of someone coming up from the countryside with a bunch of grapes and one red rose, rare things at that time, and him cupping his wasted hands around the rose to smell it more deeply, holding it up to his face. The poet Ruth Pitter, who brought them, writes with an air of reverence. And roses were so fun for me because they kind of are the emblem of beauty at its most conventional. But what beauty was to Orwell, I think, ultimately was a kind of integrity, something that is internally consistent, that has integrity in the moral sense, something that's honest and truthful to the best of the speaker or writer's abilities, something trustworthy. And of course, you can invert that again and see what he was against was all this slippery, manipulative, deceptive, euphemistic language. So the aesthetic and the ethical began to seem not very separate at all. But also, of course, you know, I'm not sure what page it's on as I look at the the unindexed galleys I'm holding. But he does say in that wonderful passage, as long as I live, I shall continue to feel strongly 
about, I'm quoting from memory, you know, obscure facts, love the surface of the earth, and take pleasure in the sound of words or something like that. Yes, it's so long, I think this is what you're referring to. So long as I remain alive and well, I shall continue to feel strongly about prose style, to love the surface of the earth, and to take a pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. That's actually been, uh, those few sentences have been the closest thing I've had to a kind of credo for the last 30 years. I absolutely love them. And I love the individual eccentricity of scraps of useless information, loving the surface of the earth. And again, it's this Orwell that we have not been encouraged to see this man who is doing his job against the horrors of his age, but is also taking pleasure, loving the surface of the earth, enjoying those scraps of useless information, and feeling strongly about prose style. He's he's in tension with, you've said several times, a certain part of the left, maybe the dominant part of the left in his lifetime, that you know may see an interest in flowers or beauty and um, aesthetic experience as indulgent or extraneous to the, the, the class struggle and other more important things. Uh, do you think that's still a problem on the left today? This sort of, um, I don't know what you want to call it, whether it's a certain kind of utilitarian thinking or just an indifference to aesthetic experience. Do, do you think that's less a problem now? Or do you, do you still feel yourself wrestling with some of the things that you think he was uh, sort of pointing out? I think we now benefit greatly from organizers like Adrian Marie Brown, who actually published a book called Pleasure Politics. I think that like the Black Civil Rights Movement, which had music and beauty, was a lot less that way. But I think a lot of the white left, the kind of communist and communist-adjacent left, etc., did fall into a trap of this anti-aesthetic austerity. And I grew up also when people were calling everything bourgeois, and Orwell writes about a woman writing in to say that flowers are bourgeois. And of course, there's many answers to that, one of which is, well, do you think the proletariat doesn't want beauty and pleasure, or do they just not have access to it? You know, are we not fighting just for bread, but roses too? But the other thing is, I was also very fun to write this book. I told Sam at one point that I felt like I was throwing sissy flowers at Manly Orwell, because flowers are always seen as feminine, although they are the sexual parts of plants, and they have both male and female parts, most of them. Flowers are treated as very trivial when the flowering plants are the dominant organisms on earth. They make this world, they sequester the carbon, they feed us. We are utterly dependent upon them. If all the flowering plants disappeared tomorrow, we would disappear the day, you know, more or less the day after. So the the roses were an invitation to think very hard about flowers, to think about plants, both before flowering plants existed, the earlier plants that sequestered all the carbon in the atmosphere to create the modern atmosphere, and the, the sequestered carbon that became the coal, oil, and gas we've been extracting for the last 150 years to create climate change. And also to think about plants in genetic science and the genetic controversies in the Soviet Union where they decided to deny genetic science and Darwinism in favor of 
bogus science that helped create some of the mass famines of the Stalinist era and also caused scientists either to be sent to the gulags, executed, or driven to suicide and exile because to tell the truth about even the nature of plants under Stalinism became a very dangerous thing to do. And this man named Lysenko, who was promoting a lot of bogus science, became kind of a darling of Stalin and uh, the dominating figure for a while in Soviet science. And Orwell was fascinated by Lysenko and the way that lies in science were functioning became very much an influence on 1984. Mm. So again, plants are, you know, if you eat food and breathe air, plants are very relevant to your life. So I wanted to get at that as well. In a way, Orwell, you know, the, the roses are a portal to look more deeply at Orwell, but Orwell is a portal also to look more deeply at plants and to think about plants in these political ways, political ways because of the age we're in that are inseparable from ecological ways, including the uh, climate change. There's a lot about climate change in the book, and you say at various points, certainly uh, at one point I recall, that the understanding that what happens to nature is political was not something that Orwell could see at the time in, in the same way that we see it now in terms of uh, making the planet uninhabitable. But he did take a great interest in the extractive industries in coal, in thinking about how these industries shaped the modern world and and the role they played in the lives of people who never went near a coal mine. And I wonder if you could tell us a little more about you know the Orwell who goes to the coal mines, which is an Orwell who fascinates me because he appears in my own recent book, Dirty Work. Um, but tell us more about that Orwell. Orwell plants those roses in the spring of 1936, and he's just come back from the industrial north of England near Manchester, the town of Wigan and its surroundings. He's been sent on assignment by his left-wing publisher to uh, report on and write a book about the desperate poverty there of the unemployed, and also he takes a very hard look at the coal industry, both the condition of the miners and their families, and he goes down into the mines on three occasions and is really kind of stunned, much more than he is, I think, by the Spanish Civil War or anything he tells us about his time in Burma, by what he sees. The sheer nightmare of these incredibly hot, often very low ceiling spaces you have to hunch over or even crawl through. Sometimes the ceilings are only three feet high. Um, these men who half naked or mostly naked work in those conditions with no protection, inhaling the coal dust, filthy, only bathing once a week uh, over their whole bodies. And just the, the intensity of the labor, he actually has, you know, he's a very unhealthy person, and his life is kind of a triumph over his medical condition. And But he actually collapses after one of his visits and has to spend a few days in bed. And he says at one point that there's some kinds of manual labor he could imagine himself doing, but there is absolutely no way he could ever be a miner. And also says in this remarkable passage that you know, he's back in Wallington in this cottage in the country that he's just had coal delivered and they've put it in the coal chute, that how easy it is to not think about where things come from. And as an environmental writer, that's been one of my long interests. You know, I think that most of 
throughout most of human history, most of what you used, you would have some relationship to. You know, if you wore if you wore wool clothing, you probably not only knew it came from sheep, you might know or own the sheep it came from. You might have done the spinning and weaving yourself or known who did. And, um, you know, we live in a world of alienated commodities now. And this is very much what your book, Dirty Work, is about. It's very easy to not know where our meat, our food uh comes from where our energy comes from. In Orwell's time, coal was very visible. You know, you were building coal fires and grates and tending boilers and and uh, stoker was a major job. Now, uh, natural gas and uh, other stuff is much easier to render invisible. You don't see when you put that gas pump nozzle in your gas tank, you're not going to see what comes out of it. You just see numbers rack up. And so he was doing this really interesting thing that we do a lot as environmental journalists of connecting the dots, making the system visible so that readers would would think harder about these pieces of the world that they're morally and practically engaged with but don't see. So yeah, and it seems striking to me that he comes back and almost immediately plants this first real garden um, of his adult life. And in a sense... It felt like he sees this world that feels so dead and filthy and ugly and miserable and exploitative, and that in some sense the garden he plants is kind of the opposite of that. And then, of course, he goes off to the Spanish Civil War at the end of 1936, and those two journeys to the coal mines in the north and to the Spanish Civil War are what really do the job his left-wing friends couldn't do of turning him into a deeply left-wing deeply political writer into the Orwell that has done so much for the discourse the last 80 years or so. Well, I think it's it's so interesting that you focused on that coal mine period, the, the visit he made, because Orwell is so known for taking an interest in lies that conceal brutality and ugliness. And when we think of that, we think of the, the ugliness of Stalinism, right? The, the totalitarian ugliness. Yeah. Um, but he's writing there about the ugliness of capitalism, right? Yes. And you sort of pick that up and say, this is still very much a concern in our world. Yeah, you know, and there is a tendency to think 1984 is about the Soviet Union, that the bad people he's talking about are all them. And of course, he's deeply critical of the part of the left that becomes Stalinist. One of the things that I feel we've never discussed enough that Orwell brought up very much for me is if you support authoritarian and authoritarians by their very nature are human rights abusers, then in what sense are you the left or what the hell is the left? Orwell is also very critical of the poverty and injustice and propaganda and lies of the status quo in his own life. It's very much part of um, his novels set in his own England. And, um, you know, even before he went to the coal mines, he wrote about going and picking hops, the hops used to make beer, and just seeing this underpaid casual labor and how they get by, you know, did some other stuff, went in, of course, down and out in Paris and London. He was very interested in poverty in the lives of the poor. And it feels almost like an expiation for going to Eton and his parents' desires to kind of thrust him on this upwardly mobile path and make the most of the aristocratic family connections. 
that he's, you know, very much going against the grain by entrenching himself in many ways among the poor and greatly enjoying at many times the company of the poor, although he could never shake the the fancy accent he got from Eton, the most elite school in Britain, and uh, was kind of a misfit wherever he went, I think. If I can bring you back to the coal mines you one can. more time, the part of the book that, that I just found really fascinating and seemed inspired by that was the journey you then take. Um, you decide to go and find out where and how roses are produced. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I had actually known for a long time that most of the roses sold commercially in the U.S. come from Colombia and that it's an absolutely brutal industry. And it, for me, emblematized, even before I met Orwell's roses, that we often live in the modern era in, you know, a kind of oxymoronic paradoxical state between things that look beautiful and that are morally ugly are produced in hideous ways and you know the 1980s was when we began to talk about the sweatshops that made nikes you know i'm holding my iphone to do this now we know that iphones are also produced under hideous conditions i live in california where we know a lot about how our fruits and vegetables are produced and what's exploitative there you know, a lot of the book is about reading Orwell, going to some of Orwell's places and things, but the one major detour from that kind of Anglo-centric business, you know, plus the Spanish Civil War, etc., was I went to Colombia. I had the extraordinary good fortune of being friends with a young man named Nate Miller, who's a union organizer, who'd spent three years in Colombia conducted possibly the deepest investigation of the Colombian rose industry, you know, published in the U.S., and who was very glad to come with me and spend a week with me in Bogota going to the greenhouses on the outskirts and looking at it. And the export flower industry dates back to the 1960s, but it's become more and more of a kind of Fordist systematized factory where workers function like machines. The wages are incredibly low. For our lovely Valentine's Day and Mother's Day ceremonies in the U.S., they often make workers work 100 hours a week. They use toxic chemicals. A lot of the majority of the workers are women, many of them single mothers. So they're both unable to spend enough time with their children, you know, when pregnant or, you know, in nursing, they may be, you know, spreading the pesticides and other chemicals to their kids. Through Nate, I went to meet with an organizer and some contemporary rose workers who talked about the repetitive stress injuries, the sexual harassment. And the rose workers have all these uh, sayings in Spanish, of course, things like, you know, the consumers get the roses, but we get the thorns, you know, or the roses look very beautiful, but their production is full of tears. And it felt like they emblematized, you know, whether it's how your sweater is made or your food is made. You do such a powerful job of looking at meatpacking in the U.S. and dirty work and what a monstrous industry it is, how traumatic it is for the workers to be killing and dismembering animals in these brute conditions and how we choose not to know it, choose not to see it, choose not to see them. 
Rebecca, that brings me to a question that I must say has been asked to me and I never know what to say, but, but I assume your conclusion is not don't buy roses, uh, don't appreciate the beauty of roses because of the ugliness behind so much of this that is produced and brought to you. You know, don't buy a sweater you like. Um, how, how do you think about all that? I actually, you know, I don't eat, I, I mostly don't eat red meat and I'm very fortunate. I live in the Bay Area. We have a lot of local growers. I can buy great flowers, some of which you're looking at um, from the local farmer's market. And, you know, I'm actually talking to the people who grew them. You know, I can't guarantee that there's no exploitation, but I, they are not being th- flown on 747s from Bogota to Miami and then trucked. Their carbon footprint is not so huge. So yeah, I actually don't buy supermarket and Trader Joe's and florist roses because they actually do feel kind of weird to me now that I've seen these rose greenhouses. And, you know, I actually spent a number of hours in the room, this huge cold room where workers are assembling the bouquets and they leave Colombia already wrapped in cellophane, trimmed in, et cetera, ready to drop into the buckets in your in your supermarket or florist. And I actually think for those of us who are affluent enough to make the choices, we have good choices. We don't need those exploitative things. And of course, climate change asks us to consume more locally, to eat lower on the food chain. So we could just not eat red meat for the most part, you know, or do some red meat harm reduction. So you can still have the aesthetic, but you don't need the exploitation with it. I think so. Yeah, no, I love, you know, I do love flowers. It's funny at different points. At the beginning of the pandemic, I really needed flowers in the house. And lately I've been doing it again. And actually the last person who bought me roses knew and explained that these had come from a local grower, uh, that I was, you know, that it was going to make a difference to me. And I was glad to know it was so. So Rebecca, you've talked about one thing you share with Orwell and identify with, and that's an appreciation of beauty, um, of landscapes and flowers, and also of the beauty of language. But there's a second thing that you mention quite early in the book, and it's sort of a theme in the book, and that's Orwell's, as you put it, honesty about the shortcomings of one's own side and loyalty to it anyway. Uh, I think you're, you're referring there to his book, Homage to Catalonia, and his experience of of really seeing and confronting different factions of the left up close, including the Stalinists. Tell us more about that. What I've been very aware of in the age of Trump is that a lot of people who are supposed to be the left are avid supporters of Putin, of Assad, that um, parts of the left have really been, or what's supposed to be the left have been pro-authoritarian. It's often directly connected to um, the part of what's supposed to be the left that's misogynist and sometimes racist as well. And so I have, in a very young kind of way, this indignation. If we're not all agreed that universal human rights and absolute equality are what defines the left, then what the hell is the left? And Orwell was exceptional in some ways in that he saw a lot of the sins and flaws of many people who were supposed to be considered the left, was very outspoken about them, antagonized a lot of people, but never did what some of his peers did, which is to say, well, if so many people on the left love Stalin and authoritarianism and are turning a blind eye to the gulags and the mass deaths and the human rights abuses and the repression of 
freedom of speech and thought, the massacres of poets, then, you know, a lot of them went over to the right. And Orwell was able to thread a careful course of sticking with what he wanted the left to be, which was about a much more, you know, he once called himself a Tory anarchist, about a more generous left, um, concerned with equality, economic and otherwise, but also concerned with freedom and liberty and self-determination and privacy. You say at one point in the book that in your reading, conservatives who think Orwell is for them, because he's, he's this critic of you know, the all-powerful state, uh, are misreading him. There's a wonderful phrase by one of his friends um, where he says, the reason Orwell wasn't a communist is because all the people who were communists weren't real communists and Orwell was. And, you know, and his friends say essentially that he believed in kind of small communities. He definitely believed in the eradication of poverty and extreme wealth and whatever redistribution that required. He believed in universal human rights and what the communists of the era, and I think, I'm sure there were people there who just believed in communism as a kind of pure ideology, but a lot of them ended up becoming supporters of the Soviet Union and its satellites, which meant that they became supporters of authoritarians who were absolutely brutal on human rights. And so we need to make that distinction. You know, the redistribution of wealth is awesome. I like it myself. And state control of absolutely everything turns into a complete nightmare. And we've seen that over and over. And of course, for Orwell, that began with the Spanish Civil War, where he realized he wasn't fighting with the loyalists against the fascists. He was with the non-Stalinist left being sabotaged, demonized, and exterminated by the Stalinist left in a three-sided war that Stalin was fueling. And Orwell himself became a hunted man because he had been with a Trotskyist group fighting on the loyalist side. And he was hunted not by the fascists, not by Franco's people, but by the loyal communists. You know, if history had been very slightly different, Orwell would have died in Spain in 1937. He nearly did, right? Well, not only did he get shot through the neck by a fascist bullet, which he survived, but his last days in Barcelona, he was living in hiding and desperately trying to get out of the country because he was very likely to be killed if he was caught. And he and his wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy Blair, were um, supporting their friend George Kopp, who had in fact been imprisoned and would be for many months under horrific conditions for being part of that non-USSR-aligned left. And uh, Kopp had been Orwell's commander. You know, we've talked about some of the affinities between your own sensibility and Orwell's and what some of the things that, that, that draw you to him, some of the things you, you write about with clear admiration and identification. But it's not everything. And in fact, you are quite open in the book about his blind spots, most notably, and here I'm quoting, around gender, around how marriages and families can become authoritarian regimes in miniature, down to the suppression of truths and promulgation of lies that protect the powerful. You don't deny or excuse Orwell's blind spot on gender, but you also don't dismiss him. So so how do you orient towards Orwell in light of that blind spot? You know, I used to have an English professor who said, but fortunately, 
Shakespeare hadn't read Freud. And uh, there's a way, there's an ahistorical way we often demand people of the past embody our values or be essentially discarded without recognizing that we don't have the values we have because we're so fucking awesome and amazing and perfect. We have the values we have because we are ourselves the result of historical processes. You know, again, I, I just turned 60. I've seen the discourse around sexual orientation, gender, race, disability, body image, etc. change radically really in the last 10 years and certainly over the last 50 years. And so Orwell, you know, he did have an aunt who was a suffragist and his mother was a suffragist, uh, you know, a woman's vote sympathizer. He might have been more aware of it. He's a more or less, a con he's younger than Virginia Woolf, who was very aware of those things. But I don't think it's particularly interesting or useful to fault him for not being ahead of his time or more aware of his time in this respect. And I also feel like these people are not there to become our friends or even necessarily our role models. They're there if they have something useful to offer us. And Orwell has a lot of useful things to offer us. And I could also throw in, he's actually a pretty good anti-racist for a guy born to a British colonial family in 1903 and is, you know, talks about American anti-black racism, British colonialism, defends Indian people being discriminated against by Britain, etc. But he doesn't particularly get gender. And, and of course, that's also that passage you read is also a reflection on my own work, which has been very much about how much violence against women is, first of all, violence against our voices in a world where women had always had equal audibility, credibility, and consequence in our speech. So much of the domestic violence, the sexual harassment, the rape, etc., would not have taken place. We saw that with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, with Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. And you see it over and over and over again. And a striking example was Tara Westover's book, Educated, where the price of being a member of her conservative fundamentalist family is agreeing that her brother's horrific violence against her never happened. And I have no families like that. And, you know, my family is not that far removed where there is not really a lot of people do not particularly want to recognize gender violence and have a lot of ways of making sure it won't be recognized. And so in a sense, what's more useful is to say Orwell gives us models of how lies and propaganda and manipulation, deception, evasion take place. And we can use them to apply to the family as a kind of state in miniature, even if he didn't. Mm. Am I right in hearing that we shouldn't be superimposing our contemporary standards on people who breathe different air and, and had a different sense of awareness of different things, but that you would be and you are less forgiving on those fronts for your contemporaries, for say members of the of the white male left with whom you've you've openly um, locked horns, maybe for very similar blind spots, but to which you're you're much less ready to forgive uh, for understandable reasons. Yeah, yeah, you know we're we're more than half a century into a very powerful feminist movement, certainly in the United States and the English speaking world. And there isn't any reason for men to not be on board with that. It's a very different world by law, by culture, than the one Orwell was in, in which women had gotten the vote. And part of it is, for me, 
Even in the last 10 years, young feminists have been really good at recognizing more subtle forms of inequality and discrimination. And I, I have learned too, and I recognize both in the intersectionality of a lot of oppression and some of the forms it takes in ways that I did not even 10 years ago. So on the one hand, I want to give people both latitude for not knowing what we know now because we didn't know it then and recognize that it's all in process. And something that always I always find somewhere between amusing and horrifying is that that righteousness generally comes from the position that we are now so fully awake, we cannot awaken further. We are now without flaw and sin. And of course, part of what you get if you're historically minded is seeing this job is not finished. In 10 years, we're going to look back and say, oh, in 2021, we hadn't really recognized yet. And I don't know what it is that we haven't recognized yet. Um, gender being on a spectrum, intersex and trans people, uh, non-binary people, etc. That is a very different set of frameworks than most of us had 15 or 20 years ago. And I assume those things are going to continue to change. So part of why I think we don't need to be harsh about the past is because maybe the future will not be too harsh towards us. But I just want to add a coda to that, which is there are people who are not better than their age, but there are people who are real monsters in their age. You can look at what a woman dubbed the mid-century misogynist, the Philip Roth, uh, John Updike, Saul Bellow crowd. And like there were people writing who did not hate women the way those men and the Beats hated women. Rebecca, I wanted to ask you one other thing. You, you in the book, kind of imagine this Orwell who might not have been the great voice of anti-fascism if his times had been different and who might have written very different things. Um, in your own memoir, you also talk about imagining a world in which you didn't have to write about violence towards women. You, d you wouldn't I'm not sure burden is the right word, but that, that, that you sort of, you talk about the difficulty and, and the weight of returning to that over and over again, because it is still so much part of our world. And I wonder if that's part of what lay in this project to go back to Orwell and something you sort of identify with to a certain extent, because you've become such an important voice around these issues, but that means you have to write about them all the time and you have to sort of be on call to talk about them. Yeah, what was wonderful for me is to realize that not only did Orwell write a number of essays about everyday pleasures, notably about the natural world with the Vicar of Bray essay and a wonderful essay about toads that ends up including atomic bombs and a lot of politics, but it's a, it's partly about spring and beauty. But he wrote a whole cluster of essays in 1946 when he was recently widowed, about to begin 1984, and it would be very easy to look at these essays as relatively lightweight. He writes an essay about the pleasure of junk shops, but he describes in the junk shops um, glass paperweights with a bit of coral in them, and that's the glass paperweight that will end up in 1984. You can see the relationships. And so I think he actually did manage to be that writer to some extent, and I have managed to write about the things that give me pleasure, about beautiful things, and sometimes to write about very serious things in ways that I, that do feel 
I hope have aesthetic pleasure for the reader in which is finding patterns and meanings had a kind of aesthetic pleasure for me as the writer. You know, so it was really the younger me that thought, oh, if Orwell had lived in a peaceful time. But I don't think any human being has lived in a time, maybe maybe some of those hunter-gatherer societies we idealize or early agrarian societies, maybe, you know, like being Hopi in the year 1300, there wasn't a lot a lot of human rights abuses to expose, but um, you know, in the world, the literary world you and I are heirs to, I don't think there has been a moment, not in Chaucer's time, not in Shakespeare's time, not in Dickens' time, not in Virginia Woolf's time, not in James Baldwin's time, when there weren't pressing human rights issues, pressing abuses of power, pressing lies to write about. And I think you can do both. And I think, for example, Baldwin and Wolfe's political work is actually profoundly beautiful and moving, partly because they were two writers. They're two of my other major influences who found a way to be both deeply political and deeply personal and not compartmentalize. So, yeah, so I don't yearn for that other Orwell, both because I think we have him and because I think he himself correctly saw that had he remained a really apolitical person, his writing itself might have been essentially trivial. He writes about the purple passages in his prose before he became political and the way in which it felt like, to use one of his words and not mine, a lot of it I think felt like humbug. And his novels before this politicization with the coal mines and the Spanish Civil War are not great novels. Animal Farm I see as an allegory or a fable, as did he. And 1984, he called a satire. But I think that his realist novels are not particularly good. And they're closest to what he might have been, you know, without that politicization. So thank God he went to Wigan, went into the coal mines, went to the Spanish Civil War, where he discovered the Soviet Union and Stalin utterly corrupting that war. And so the integrity that I find as an aesthetic that is an ethic in his work is partly about not segregating these things. And that's one of the beauties of this work. And when he's writing about, even in The Vicar of Bray, which might be his most lightweight essay, he's asking the question of what do we leave posterity and leaning towards a kind of environmental awareness of can we think in long-term pieces of time? Can we look at trees? Seriously, can we think about legacies? Mm. Rebecca Solnit, thank you so much for sharing all of this, and thank you for your book. It's marvelous, and people should go buy it and read it. Such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Primary Sources is a co-production of Public Books and Type Media Center. Public Books is an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can learn more at publicbooks.org. Type Media Center is a nonprofit home for independent journalists. It's committed to building a more equitable future for journalism in the public interest. Learn more about its flagship programs at typemediacenter.org. Our show's executive producer is Caitlin Zaloon, the founding editor of Public Books. Our producer is DJ Kashmir. Our engineer is Jess Engabretson. Special thanks to Kelly McKinney, the publisher and managing editor of Public Books, 
and Taya Grobo, Executive Director of Type Media Center. See you all next week for a brand new episode.